Hi, welcome back to Bullet Points. Today, I'm speaking with Zach Brown, Policy Associate and Special Assistant to the President at Plowshares Fund, a foundation dedicated to reducing and eliminating nuclear weapons. Zach has studied nuclear force planning and strategy, nuclear weapons design and production, arms control and nonproliferation, and the evolution of deterrence theory from 1945 to the present at the College of William and Mary and Georgetown University. His writings appear in Defense One, The National Interest, Responsible Statecraft, and War is Boring. Thank you so much for being here today, Zach. Thanks, Sebastian. It's really fun. So as a first question, just generally, what is the Plowshares Fund? Sure. So Plowshares Fund is a national security organization. We were founded in the 1980s by Sally Lilienthal, who was really concerned about how the Cold War was dramatically heating up in the early part of the 1980s. You know, we often forget that uh, that that part of our history feels very distant. But, you know, there were a, a lot of fears uh, nuclear fears, fears about going to war with the Soviets uh, in their first part of the 80s that were, you know, rectified through a lot of hard uh, effort and labor towards the end of that decade. Um, but right in the beginning, you know, of course, they founded this organization. They were concerned about the threat of nuclear weapons, about the threat of nuclear war. Um, and so we are, uh, you know, a grant making organization. We work with a lot of uh, different organizations, both at the legislative level, at the grassroots level. Uh, you know, we work with think tanks, we work with policy shops uh, to try to find ways uh, at all levels of government to, to reduce our the nuclear dangers of our shared world. Um, so that's the kind of general plowshares spiel. Um, and I've been working here since 2017 or 2018, rather. Um, and I was hired by former plowshares fund president Joe Serencioni after I took his class at Georgetown University. Uh, so a little hint for everybody out there who, you know, is, is at school or at grad school. Uh, if you really like your professor and you like what he does, sometimes they can give you a job. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 wild. Um, so now before we get into nuclear strategies themselves, what are nuclear weapons and why are they important? Sure. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Um you know, we always kind of talk about nuclear bombs, and I think the the kind of public awareness of nuclear bombs, insofar as there is a public awareness of nuclear bombs. I mean, people know what they are, right? You know what A-bombs are, um, you know what nukes are. There's just this idea that they're just really big bombs, which is true, but it's also kind of a misnomer. I mean, these are so dramatically different than anything else that came before them. Um, that it just kind of it, it staggers the imagination and, and they almost shouldn't even be lumped into the same uh, term. So, you know, just to give you uh, a little bit of technical background and I won't dive too, too deep into it, but, you know, you think of conventional bombs. So like, you know, any, a normal everyday bomb carried by an airplane or you know, fired off by a tank or anything like that. Um, so, you know, TNT is usually the composite material that they're exploding. I mean, really what they're doing is they're triggering chemical reactions. So, you know, TNT is one big, lumpy, unstable chemical, and it wants to be several smaller, stable chemicals. And so as it breaks apart, the electrons on the outer edge of uh, each atom kind of jump around, right? And as they're jumping around, they release energy in the form of photons, which, you know, you get the heat and you get the, the blast and everything like that. But the core of those atoms, the nucleus, where the protons and the neutrons are, doesn't even get touched, doesn't even come close. And so, you know, really what they did in the 1930s um, when they discovered that if you had these big, clumpy, unstable, enormous uh, nuclei like uranium nuclei and later plutonium nuclei that are huge, you know, if you shot a neutron right in the middle of them, they would split. And as they split, you know, they would release enormous amounts of energy, far larger than anything that had been done before. I mean, just to give, you know, the kind of classic example, you know, the, the biggest conventional, you know, TNT, you know, chemical reaction bomb that we use in World War II was something called the Grand Slam. And it was huge. I mean, it was 10 tons. It was a 10 ton bomb, um, you know, so it had the explosive power of 10 tons of TNT. That's 22,000 pounds. And only one of these could be carried by a single bomber at a time. And they used to drop these on U-boat uh, submarine pens, which had these big, thick concrete bunkers that they had to break through. And this is the only way that they could do it, right? You know, you had to, this was the biggest bomb. You know, most bombs were, 
you know, 500 pounds of TNT or a couple hundred pounds of TNT. So, you know, th this 10 tons is enormous. So that was the biggest one. The Hiroshima bomb that, you know, detonated, will detonate, you know, 75 years ago uh, on August 6th, this August 6th, exploded with a yield of 15,000 tons of TNT. So you go from literally the biggest thing you can make is 10 tons. That is like the biggest that is, you know, practically possible for the people to go from 10 tons to 15,000 tons. You know, and, th and those are just the atomic bombs. You know, the, these are the, uh, you know, the classic uranium plutonium bombs uh, that just rely on fission. You know, that's that's not even talking about the fusion bombs that they came up with later. I mean, the fusion bombs, you're going from the thousands of tons of TNT, which is kilotons of TNT, to millions of tons of TNT. So literally megatons of TNT. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I think I saw it uh, written somewhere that if you if you took every single bomb that was dropped in every theater um, by the Americans in World War II, including you know, the atomic bombs, you would get something around 2 million tons of TNT. Um, we were doing tests in the 50s with singular devices, individual devices um, in the 50s, 60s that would have something like 10 megatons. So literally like five World War II's in that single device. I mean, this, is, this isn't even a bomb anymore. So I had this no professor at Georgetown University uh, who was one of my favorite professors. Um, and I won't name him because I don't want to embarrass him, but I remember he, he, one time he asked the class, you know, basically like what do nuclear bombs do? And, you know, of course the first thing, you know, we said, oh, you know, they provide a deterrence capability, you know, they, um, uh, they show resolve, you know, they show the scientific strength of a certain country. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what they do. Goes, what do they do? And I'm like, all right, well, he's not taking that answer. It's like, okay, well, they... You know, flatten cities, you know, they blow up forests, they, you know, incinerate ships. And go, no, 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 what do they do? He's like trying to get us to drill down deeper. And we're saying, okay, you know, all right, well, they generate, you know, the thermal effects and there's the blast effects and they generate the radiation effects. Just, no, 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 you're still not getting it. He goes, literally, a, a nuclear weapon, its entire purpose is to create some in Earth's atmosphere, basically a ball of gas that is smaller than a volleyball at over 1 billion degrees Celsius and with pressures over 3 million atmospheres. And it just creates that ball for a split second, literally talking about a microsecond, so 1 millionth of a second before this thing starts expanding. And he goes, that's it. This device creates that in the atmosphere. And everything else that happens after that, everything else is just physics. This is the, the physics of this thing uh, existing in the atmosphere. I mean, you're literally talking about replicating for a split second, literally one millionth of a second, uh, a sun. You know, you're generating a tiny, tiny sun in the atmosphere. And it's just, you know, to go back to your first question, I mean, this is, you know, when we talk about nuclear bombs and conventional bombs, you know, we just... They're both bombs. One of them is just a nuclear bomb and one of them is just a conventional bomb. And to me, it's like, yes, uh, I understand why we have to call them that, but it's, it just totally hides the vast difference between these two. I mean, one just kind of explodes and you can wreck an apartment building and, you know, you have to drop a ton of them as they did in World War II to destroy a city. And one literally creates a miniature sun in the atmosphere. And that single device is enough, you know, to kill hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people. So, you know, these are just... You know, it's it's important to highlight this distinction, and this is really what got me interested in you know kind of learning the physics and 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 learning nuclear policy, is that you know there is a side of them where you were just like this is a marvel, this is a marvel of of modern science, of modern uh, technology, of how far we have come as a species. But it's also just it's such it's so wrapped in tragedy at the same time because. You know, it's just a, a part of human nature, I guess, that we created this thing. And, you know, our first use for it was to, you know, drop it over the heads of other human beings that we didn't really like at the time. And we've kept them around ever since. So, you know, it's just it's really it's it's a really important distinction. It's also a really fascinating one.
That is fascinating. Yeah, and and it it is truly sad that um, that was our first use. Uh, I've heard that mentioned by a lot of people, but yeah, it's it's very sad. Um, just a general question now getting into nuclear strategies. Um, what do you see as the biggest potential cause of major nuclear war and how, how can those causes be mitigated? Sure. So this is a tricky one. Um, but I mean, the, the real answer is, you know, that we will stumble or fall into or by accident create scenarios in which war becomes impossible and all of a sudden everything starts getting used and you know once nuclear weapons are used you know the the real fear is once you've crossed that line it's a really hard genie to put back into the bottle and that you might suddenly get all these spasms of violence where you know you go from just one device being used to you know two to several dozen to hundreds and then you've got you know global global catastrophe and nuclear winter and, and hundreds of millions of dead uh, if not billions, and you know, you're talking literally about knocking, you know, the human species down a couple of rungs, uh, as Dan Carlin likes to say, you know, on the civilizational, you know, ladder. Uh, you know, you're knocking us back. You know, the world will not be the same. So, you know, the 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 real uh, danger of these weapons uh, throughout their history, I think, has been, you know, that human beings. Um, are, you know, kind of by nature, <laughs> nervous creatures who don't have perfect information. And, you know, we, we talk about the kind of rationality of these weapons that, you know, if I have them and you have them, then this establishes deterrence because you know that you can't use them without me using them and vice versa. And so neither of us will use them. We'll just kind of settle into the steady equilibrium uh, and everything will be hunky-dory because they'll just essentially cancel each other out. And, you know, we call this, you know, this kind of this idea of like the rational human being, you know, right. And that holds true only to a certain extent. I mean, uh, how many of us have met uh, people in our lives who might be a little bit irrational at times? And, and how many of us have been in a position of power where literally you have the, these kind of pressures where you're responsible for, you know, the, the continuation of, you know, your country of, you know, the best interests of your people and, and, you know, you might very well think that you're under attack and that, you know, the, the national honor demands that you respond or that, you know, you think if you respond quick enough, you know, you might be able to knock off uh, some of the missiles, the enemy missiles before they've left. And so, you know, the incentive to kind of do something in that moment is really strong. And, and you know, there's like no time for error. So, so just to so paint a, you know, a very kind of telling example, you know, there are... Um, Nuclear weapons, uh, American nuclear weapons, um, particularly the ones that, you know, sit in uh, the silos out in the Midwest, um, are on basically hair trigger alert. You know, they are they are able to be launched within, you know, minutes of receiving the order. Like we keep them on hot ready status permanently. And the reason that we do this is especially for those ones that are sitting in the silos. I mean, you can look up and you can see um you, you can see the silos from Google Maps. I mean, anybody can, you know, they're not hidden. You know, they're these big concrete blocks that are out there in the middle of farmland. Um, and so you, you can kind of go play um, hide and seek with them and you can kind of, you know, go around the map and, and see if you can find them. So, you know, of course the Russians know where they are, you know, the Chinese know where they are, even though, you know, the Chinese don't have the numbers that take them all out, uh, but the Russians certainly do. And so the fear, you know, was always that, you know, given the vast, uh, speed of these weapons, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, from the minute they're launched from Russia to this, you know, the second that they land in the continental United States is probably at most 30 minutes, right? Um, and for part of that time, at least, you know, before they kind of get around the curvature of the earth, you might, you might not be able to confirm that they're actually on the way, like, you know, the radar might not be able to see them if it's based in the continental United States. And so if you're the president and you're being told that, you know, there are all these missiles on their way, um, and they're going for your silos, you know, it's, it's kind of disarming strike. They're going to knock out our nukes, sir. And, you know, we have to launch now. You have probably seven minutes, seven or eight minutes, uh, to decide that you need to launch these off. And like, what if you're wrong? Like, what if it's a mistake? You know, what if they got, um, what if the radar was incorrect? What if the computers were incorrect, that there was a actual incoming strike and you fired off the first salvo of, 
an actual nuclear war. And so you cause the actual thing that you were trying um, not to do. And, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but we have had time and time again throughout our history, uh, we've had these close calls. I mean, the first radars um, that were, you know, set up in the in the 50s and, you know, in the 60s, I remember there was a story of a really high-powered radar that, um, you know, they thought there was, a, there was a huge alarm. There was a huge alarm in the United States and at the nuclear command facilities because they thought there was a, an incoming uh, bomber strike. And what it really was is that the radar beams were so powerful, they were bouncing off the moon and coming back uh, to it. So, you know, based on the moon rising over the horizon, they thought this was a, a bomber stream. And, you know, there's been other ones where it's like, you know, flocks of geese, you know, might have uh, set it off. Um, there's been, there were scenarios where there was a training tape uh, that was put in the system and it simulated all these, uh, you know, incoming strikes. And so they were really concerned, you know, that, I mean, this, this happens, you know, so this is, this is like the main worry that, you know, it's not that, you know, rational people will sit down and say, all right, you know, tomorrow we're going to nuclear war and we're just going to do it. You know, we've, I've had it up to here with you guys and, you know, so long, everybody. I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. Uh, but the danger, as long as we have these weapons around, as long as they're on such high readiness too, to be used at a moment's notice, uh, the danger that you're going to slip or fall into something like a real nuclear exchange, um, I don't, it's hard to quantify, you know, and maybe it's not, you know, 60%, you know, who knows? I don't know. Maybe it's less than 1%, but it's like, you know, Russian roulette, you know, you keep spinning the barrel, you know, even something with a really low probability over time has a high probability of occurring. It's almost like we've been in an experiment over the last 75 years, you know, can human beings handle these weapons? And so far, yeah, we can, seems like we can, but we realize that like the Cold War didn't end that experiment. You know, the fall of the Soviet Union didn't end that experiment. You know, nothing since then has ended that experiment. These things are still around. And, you know, it's, it, that experiment ends in one of two ways. Either we figure out that we can't deal with these weapons, um, and that's just kind of the end of us, or we figure out a way to totally get rid of them. Uh, and, you know, we can just end the experiment there. But, you know, the, the probability of that is also, you know, kind of frustratingly... I, w I wouldn't say the probability of it is frustratingly low. I would say the progress towards that end, although there has been some significant progress over the last couple of decades, I mean, that end is still so elusive, and it's really hard to envision just how we would get there. Gotcha, yeah. So you mentioned the uh, 50s and 60s. Going back to that time, um, there's this strategic idea I hear a lot, and I see Plasher's used it as well, which is the idea of Cold War thinking when it comes to um, nuclear deterrence and disarmament. What is Cold War thinking, and why is it dangerous? Sure. So it's hard to, it's hard to totally define. I mean, you, you can go to 100 different people, and they're going to give you 100 different answers on what exactly Cold War thinking is. So I'm going to give you my definition of what it is, and this is kind of a catch-all, so maybe this is a cop-out. But I would say, broadly speaking, since the late 1980s and until 1990s, and especially since the Cold War actually ended, um, which, you know, of course, there's, <laughs> it's hard to quantify what exactly date that was. You know, there's a couple of different dates, but we can kind of broadly say the late 1980s and the early 1990s, um, and certainly by the time the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, there has been a uh, substantive and significant and intentional shift of nuclear weapons from the center of American strategy, you know, in dealing with other countries and, and thinking about, you know, our geopolitical position in the world. And what we're afraid of now and what we're seeing now is a reverse of that shift, a recentering of nuclear weapons in American foreign policy, a recentering of American of nuclear weapons in American strategic thinking. Um, a, you know, not, not necessarily a readiness for them to be used. Although, you know, of course there's, you know, <laughs> there are certainly people in any kind of, you know, there are hawks in any kind of administration who would say, you know, we need to think seriously about using these and we should, you know, uh, we shouldn't shy away from the possibility of, you know, of course, um, there's always a possibility that they're going to be used, but you know, this, this kind of intentional placement of, uh, forces or postures or strategies that would 
um, that would center nuclear weapons in, you know, kind of American geopolitical strategy. And one kind of prime example of this that has kind of reared its ugly head um, and that has kind of seen a rebirth, a renaissance in American uh, strategic thinking is this idea of limited nuclear war. So, you know, everybody is of the mind that, you know, this strategic nuclear war, meaning, you know, basically city destroying salvos of missiles going back and forth between the United States and Russia is just ridiculous, unthinkable, right? Like everybody, you know, the hawks are on board with that. The doves are on board with that. Um, you know, everybody thinks that that is crazy. Everybody's trying to avoid that. The thing that is a little bit more contentious is um, whether you can have a limited nuclear war and everything will be okay. So we know that you can't have a strategic nuclear war and things will be okay. But, you know, what if you just use one? And what if you just use a couple? Or what if you confine them to the battlefield? Or you just use them against, you know, advancing columns of enemy tanks? Or you just use them against this one airfield that we really need to take out? Or what if, you know, they're attacking us and we use just one to signal, hey, you know, that's enough, back off. Or what if we attack them and they signal, you know, to us, hey, you know, back off. You know, maybe, maybe there's some scenario in which we can just use a couple of these and we can contain the escalation. We can say, everybody, hey, everybody chill out. And we can kind of resolve this through other means. Uh, and this is a very, it's a very tantalizing idea, right? That you, you, that you know that you don't want to use the big weapons, but maybe you could use the small ones so you don't have to use big ones. The problem with that is that we don't actually know the linkage between the small ones and the big, like this hasn't been tested out, right? You know, we, we've kind of done, we've, We've had hundreds and thousands of nuclear wars and war games and, and books and, you know, entire oceans of inks has been spilt on the subject, but nobody's actually gamed this out. You know, we don't actually know. Um, it may be the fact that, you know, if, uh, you know, it's a big, um, the big example now is that, you know, if Russia attacks NATO using conventional forces and, NATO and the United States are able to push them back and, you know, maybe they launch a couple of airstrikes into Russia or, you know, uh, something to blunt the Russian off offensive. And then Russia, you know, launches off one uh, nuclear weapon. And, you know, it's against some, maybe it's some German air base or something or bridge somewhere just to kind of signal to the Americans, hey, knock it off. And, and maybe it's the case that, you know, that being so we could launch one at them and, you know, we could say, hey, you know, message received, but also don't do that again. Or, you know, we're also ready to go there, too. And let's try to figure something out. And maybe everything ends there. You know, maybe it is the case. We just don't know. We haven't we haven't done this. But it's also, I think, equally possible that in the kind of chaos of warfare and the fog of war in, in a world of imperfect information where emotions are running high and, and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of concern a lot of anxiety that, you know, maybe the Russians don't interpret that one missile coming back as just one missile coming back. Maybe they interpret that as the first of many. And maybe they assume that, you know, the Americans have said, hey, you nuked us. We're going to go to, you know, general nuclear war. And, and maybe they try to preempt us. And so maybe, you know, ends up spiraling out of control. And all of a sudden we have missiles, you know, heading to um, Moscow and Washington, D.C. And, and then, you know, again, that's the kind of end game. And I would put it to you that because you don't know which outcome it is, right? You don't know if it's going to be the okay outcome. You don't know if it's going to be the bad outcome. Given the stakes that are involved, like, you know, the, literally like, you know, the lives of hundreds of millions plus, you know, this is, there, there's no United States left after an exchange like that. You know, given those stakes, I think you would want to give the benefit of the doubt that the bad answer might be correct, right? Like, I feel like that's just kind of proper risk assessment that you have to say, you know, I don't know, it might be the positive one, but I'm going to go with it's going to be the negative one because if I'm wrong, the, you know, and we do end it after a couple of missiles, then, hey, you know, I'm wrong. It's still a really bad scenario, but at least it's not world ending. If you're wrong, if the proponents of limited nuclear war are wrong, then it's over, then everything's over, right? Um, so this is something that I think has really kind of reared its head. And, you know, and there's a lot of kind of strategic discussion around it where, um, 
you know, you, you, you kind of have to look at the United States military position in the world uh, vis-a-vis most of its, or, or not even most, vis-a-vis all of its adversaries. You know, if you're sitting in Beijing or you're sitting in Moscow and you're sitting in Pyongyang or if you're sitting in Tehran and you're looking at the United States, you're saying, look, this is a really uh, conventionally superior nuclear armed power. You know, how the heck am I going to deal with this thing? You know, uh, nuclear weapons are kind of a nice offset. Maybe I can, you know, throw a couple around and, you know, deter the United States or signals to them not to mess with me anymore. Um, and, you know, it's out of this fear that you have American policymakers who are saying, oh, geez, you know, they believe this. So we need to have options, limited options to respond in kind. And I think, you know, maybe it's an abundance of caution on their part, but I, I don't actually believe that. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that countries do take the nuclear threshold very seriously. And what I worry about is that there would be a kind of, you know, we perceive that, you know, the Russians are doing one thing. So we react with another system and they perceive because we reacted with this system that, you know, then they go and do something else. And then it just kind of, you know, you have this spiral of exchanges, you have, you know, that kind of turns into an arms race. Um, I think that there is a tendency among American policymakers and American strategists to see other countries' actions as existing in a vacuum, right? So, you know, the Russians are doing this because they are nefarious and they want to get an edge on this, you know, or the Koreans are doing this because, you know, they have some ill designs on East Asia, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, it, they kind of take the American side of that equation out, right? Throughout history, there's always been a kind of move, counter move, move, counter move, move, counter move. It's not just been move, 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 move on one side, right? Like these sides are in this two-way street, this existing dynamic. Um, And so, you know, American attempts at kind of staving off any gain that a foreign country might get through limited nuclear war might actually make limited nuclear war more possible because the other country might perceive it as something completely different, right? And so, um, you know, this this kind of growing acceptance, this, this recentering of nuclear weapons within uh, the American uh, policy sphere, but also this kind of growing acceptance that uh, limited nuclear war uh, is a very real possibility and can be avoided if we are kind of willing to do it ourselves I think is is very concerning, um, and you know could have very dire consequences for uh, how this century turns out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so now speaking more towards potential solutions to problems such as these, what's the future for the goal of the uh, full abolishment of nuclear weapons? Is that feasible, and how might that occur? Uh, man, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I would say, of course, it is feasible, right? It is well within our technological means. We put these weapons together. Uh, it, you know, it, it is, there's nothing technologically speaking from us dismantling them, right? And in fact, we have, you know, if you look at the 1980s, um, I think it was 1986 was the high watermark uh, nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, and it was, you know, north of 70,000. And right now we're at 13,000, right? So that is a huge drop off. And, and, you know, of course, out of that 13,000, you know, nine out of every 10 are held by the United States or Russia. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of, still a lot of work to be done, but, you know, it, it is, it's just so, it is so difficult because these weapons are so alluring, right? You know, they, they kind of, uh, countries have, have gotten them for a myriad of different reasons. I mean, you know, we, we got them because we were afraid that the Nazis were going to get them. I mean, that was the truth. We thought that the German bomb project was going to take off and, and we couldn't envision a world in which Hitler had these weapons and which the United States didn't. And so, you know, we raced to take it off. And it so happened to turn out that Germany had other issues on its mind uh, at the time and, and hadn't really invested in a full scale uh, bomb project in the way that we were afraid and didn't get anywhere close. And it was the same with the Japanese, even though they kind of had the budding of a, of an atomic problem, uh, program. Um, you know, the Russians of course get it because we did, 
the Brits got it because the Brits and the French, you know, typically we, uh, the common belief is that one of the main reasons that they got it is because, you know, they, there were these kind of failing imperial powers and these, you know, nuclear bombs are kind of this, this VIP signal, uh, symbol, you know, like you have these weapons, all of a sudden you're, you're important, you know, you matter, you have a say in world affairs. And so there was, a, you know, this kind of prestige belief. Um, you know, so as long as they are so alluring, it's hard to it's hard to separate them from states. It's hard to kind of remove them, right? Because you know they are uh, they are so powerful and they have this kind of status. Um, you know, I think the United States needs to play a role and has, you know, frankly, up until just a couple of years ago, has played a very significant role uh, with the Soviet Union and later with Russia. And reducing the nuclear dangers, but you know we 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 have to take that responsibility seriously because you know as we mentioned at the very start of this podcast, you know we were the ones who invented this weapon, uh, we were the first ones to use it, we were the only ones to use it in wartime. Uh, thank God they haven't been used since. Um, and we need to kind of play the leading role in and letting people know, hey, it's okay. You know, a world without these is possible. Uh, it would be safer. It would be more ideal. Um, and we can get there, you know, because as as long as the big powers have them and as long as as long as they're so they're perceived as being incredibly important and absolutely vital in places like Moscow and Washington, uh, who had hold the vast majority of these weapons, like why on earth would, you know, India or Pakistan get rid of them? You know, why on earth would, you know, uh, France or Britain get rid of them? Why? Why would China get rid of them? You know, like. We're trying to make the point that, hey, you don't need these for your security. You know, we're telling all these other countries who don't have them right now, like, don't get them. You don't need them for your security. And they're looking at us and saying, well, if that's the case, why do you have them? You know, so it's just, it's going to be a, it's a very, that's all to say, it's going to be a very, very difficult role, road. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of complexities involved. Uh, in getting there, in the timing of it, it's going to be very difficult. You know, how do you do it? Do you you time it up all at once? Do the smaller countries go first, and then the bigger countries go? It's probably going to be the first one, probably not the second one, right? Um, you know, it, how are you going to kind of ensure that with them gone, you know, uh, there won't be kind of a rush to make them again? You know, it's just... It's, there's a lot of logistical difficulties, a lot of political difficulties in getting there. But I think you just have to emphasize that that end goal uh, is both possible. It is not impossible. It is technologically possible for us to get rid of them. Uh, and it is also, I would think, in the end, very desirable, right? Because we talked about these kind of existential risks. Um, you know, we talked about the immense power of these weapons. Like, there's... Like, it, it's just kind of a harsh reality that, like, like, you're in New York, right? Yes, New York. Okay, and I'm in Washington, D.C. There is literally nothing, nothing holding back uh, Chinese or Russian missiles from hitting New York City and Washington, D.C. this afternoon. You know, like, if people started listening to this podcast, before they got to the end of it, you know, the missiles would be overhead. I mean, there's, there's literally nothing. The only thing, the only thing holding that back uh, is fear of what the United States would do in return. You know, there's no like mechanical locks on the missiles. There's no technological barriers for getting here. Like we live at the kind of continued uh, allowance <laughs> of these other countries, you know, uh, who could destroy our cities in a moment. I mean, that's, you know, and then the same I would go for their citizens, although, of course, you know, most Americans would balk that the United States would ever, you know, initiate a nuclear strike. Um, although, again, you know, of course, you go back in history and that's exactly what we did at the end of World War II. Um, and so that's why it just it's so important. I mean, this, that's no way to organize an international society. Right. I mean, there's part of you, you know, this might be a little bit. You know, romantic, but like, you know, we uh, nuclear weapons are seen as being useful because they bring peace through fear, right? You know, that's that's the best that we could do as a species: peace through fear, right? We have to have this sword of Damocles hanging over our head, 
uh, you know, that could be cut at any moment. You know, we have to live in this risk 24-7, even though we're not aware of it, even though we don't think about it all the time. We have to live, realize this risk all the time. Um, you know, it just kind of cry, cries out for something better. And so, you know, I think there are there are moves toward that end. I mean, you look at the uh, 2017, the nuclear ban treaty, um, which was, you know, passed by a large margin in the General Assembly in the UN uh, that called for the banning of nuclear weapons in the same way that chemical weapons and biological weapons have been banned. Um, and, you know, none of the nuclear powers signed it. it was, these were all non-nuclear states who basically said, listen, we're fed up. Uh, you guys promised in 1968 that you were going to get rid of these weapons. You haven't done, you've done, you've done something, right? We've gone from 70,000 to 13,000. But right now, things look like they're stalling. They look like they're going the other way. We just want to remind you, like the whole bargain that the non-nuclear states made with the nuclear states was, hey, we as non-nuclear states, we won't try to get nuclear weapons. But in, in return for that, you as nuclear states, you need to pledge that you're going to get rid of them. And, you know, so if we as nuclear states don't live up to that pledge, then what's to keep the non-nuclear states from going for these weapons in the long run? Even if it's not all of them, even if it's just a handful of them, 10 of them or 15 of them. I mean, like, this is 75-year-old technology. Nothing's really keeping them from doing so, aside from political commitments and maybe fear of economic sanction. But, like, they could do them if they wanted it. Like, they could make them if they wanted it. Most states could. I mean, North Korea could. North Korea is this poor, destitute country. If they could make uh, hydrogen bombs, then, you know, basically anybody can. Um, you know, it's not, not to belittle the work of the North Korean scientists. I'm sure they're incredibly efficient. But it just goes to show that this is a very dated uh, technology. And, um, and the only way that, you know, we're either A, going to keep them ever from being used, or B, keep them from spreading to the point where their use seems almost inevitable is ultimately to get rid of them. And that is totally within our means of doing so. The only constraints there are political constraints uh, and logistical constraints. But technologically, sure. Yeah, we can absolutely do it. And, and I think that, you know, that point needs to be hammered home. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now speaking more to, uh, you know, smaller things that can be done, what are some day-to-day -day actions that countries can more easily politically take to lower the risk of nuclear war and lower arguably unnecessary nuclear defense funding? Sure. I mean, so this kind of runs the gamut, right? You know, on the kind of bigger picture, you know, this is more for citizens in the United States. Uh, I'll speak as an American because that's kind of my bias and familiarity uh, level. Uh, you know, you can really push your representative, you know, or uh, congressperson or, you know, anybody you, you can, you can push for things like treaties, like, you know, the, the new star treaty, for example, is a big treaty between the United States and Russia that would limit, um, that limits, you know, the overall strategic warhead count, uh, of both countries. And if that fades away, which it may likely do after February, 2021, uh, for the first time, there's going to be no limits on American and Russian strategic arms since the 1970s. So you can really, you can, you know, raise a funk about this, that you are concerned about this, that you want to, you want to reenter these treaties that make everybody safer, that can train the arms races, that, you know, stave off these dynamics in which both countries spend huge amounts of money on their nuclear weapons and become less safe as a result. Um, that's just one thing you could do. I, you know, I think you can, you can make a stand in terms of, you know, the budget, again, this is kind of talking to your congresspersons. This is where things are actually, um, you know, this is where the funding comes from. This is where the money comes from, the money for these new programs, you know, so for the new generation of American nuclear weapons that are being built, uh, you know, over this upcoming decade and beyond. I mean, you can, you can advocate that some of that money, you know, doesn't need to go there. I mean, of course, you know, there's debates over the levels, right? But like if we're going to spend we could spend up to one point five trillion dollars over the next 30 years on these weapons. That's a whole ton of money. Um, and you you might be able to make the case to your congressperson. Hey, you know, I, I'm, it's not that I'm against any nuclear spending, but really, you're really going to tell me that you need all one point five trillion dollars of that. 
that we need to replace everything, that we need to upgrade everything, that we need to, you know, match piece for piece every single weapons that the Russians have. Um, you know, the, it's it sounds really difficult because, you know, it, it almost sounds like it's above you, right? Like, this is above your pay grade. I just, I just can't worry about this. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, people have gone to the street before. People have demanded change before. You know, this. there were huge... Uh, you know, public uprisings in the 1980s in both the United States and, and Europe. You know, one of the biggest demonstrations ever was, you know, the nuclear freeze campaign uh, in the early 1980s that, you know, um, that called for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people came out calling for an end to the nuclear arms race. I mean, this was it, it, because it was getting to the level where people were generally concerned about, you know, their grandkids growing up or even being able to have grandkids because the world might have been just totally barren by then. Um, I mean, these things have an impact. You know, people listen, you know, talk to your representative, talk to your congressperson, see where they stand on uh, defense spending, see where they stand on nuclear modernization, see where they stand on treaties and deals like the Iran deal or the New START treaty or the o Open Skies treaty or, you know, the now defunct INF treaty. I mean, you know, pressure them, you know, make your voice heard, you know, take this up, you know, read the materials. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm going to plug Plowshares Fund. Go to plowsharesfund.org. Um, and, you know, you can also contribute uh, to, you know, our campaigns and to our organizations and to the people on the front lines doing the work. I mean, people are working on this across the country, you know, at the, everywhere from the grassroots level to the think tank level. I mean, people, there is there's an environment for this. There's a hunger for good policy on this. You know, we are kind of at the beginning point. This is kind of the exciting part. Uh, about where we are right now. This we are at the very beginning. You know, we're we're almost at the precipice here. You know, the, there are a couple of paths that we could take from here. You know, one of them, admittedly, is pretty bad. You know, it's a renewed arms race with Russia and China and maybe some other countries as well. Um, that you know will be nuclear, but might not only be nuclear. I mean, you could talk about you know AI and other disruptive technologies along that line too. Um, but you know, nuclear will play a very big part of that. Or, you know we could still stave that off like that hasn't happened yet it's not inevitable you know that's going to really rely on the choices that we make especially within this next next decade you can stand up as individuals and as everyday citizens and say listen you know i know the history you know i know where we came from you know i've read about the cold war i don't want to go back to that uh, i don't want to live in a society where that's hanging over my head in the same way that it was um you know i I think it's time for us to seriously rethink the role these weapons play uh, in our uh, grand strategy and in our international uh, relations with other countries. And, you know, there are concrete steps that we can take to make this world a safer place. Uh, and so that's what I would, you know, encourage people to do. And again, you know, go to plowshares.org if you want to find out how. Of course, I need to plug, uh, but it's very true. Gotcha. Of course. Yeah. Um so now just more for a general question. How does nuclear disarmament and these goals that we're talking about dovetail with other world issues? Sure. Um, well, I mean, one of the huge things, uh, again, is just the money, right? Uh, there was uh, Stephen Schwartz wrote this famous book, The Atomic Audit, where he tried to catalog all the money that had been spent on nuclear weapons uh, from you know, 1945 onward. And I think the, the number, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to completely nail down. It's not like you can just look it up in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. Um, but, you know, an, an extremely accurate guess would be somewhere north of $10 trillion that the United States has spent on nuclear weapons from 1945 uh, to the present day. And of course, I just said, you know, over the next 30 years, we're going to spend $1.5 trillion more. It could even be more than that as these programs, you know, the Typical government program, especially these kind of sophisticated weapons programs, tend to go a little bit over budget. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know, that is money that you could pour into so many other things. You know, you know they talk about, you know, the Green New Deal. You know, you talk about uh, Medicare for all. You talk about, you know, domestic reform, um, incentives or, or, you know, money to help education, to help infrastructure, uh, to help almost every other significant you know, issue that our planet is facing right now. I mean, that's going to take funding. Uh, and, and one way you can free up that funding is 
by limiting the amounts that you're spending on nuclear weapons. You know, and, and it's not to say that <laughs> we're for it. Like right now, nobody, nobody in the world is talking about unilateral disarmament by the United States. Um, you know, this is that's not like we're, we're saying you know, just drop all the way down to, to zero, but have to have serious conversations about what we actually need, what would actually be sufficient for our security that would also free up, you know, untold hundreds of billions of dollars for other pressing domestic issues. I mean, that's where the real Internet connection comes. Um, between you know nuclear weapons issues and other issues is that you know there is money there uh, that we can we could reallocate and we can spend in a wiser way, but I mean of course you know there's also I mean nobody really needs to to say this but any kind of nuclear exchange uh, would be absolutely horrific for the environment. I mean you just um, you know the the this idea of nuclear winter which is kind of boiled down is is that you know in any kind of nuclear exchange with cities involved. That the amount of fires started would throw up so much soot and other particulates into the atmosphere that it would effectively block uh, the level of sunlight that's allowed to enter um, into you know and, and hit the actual ground. Um, that you know it could it could dim basically dim the sun uh, you know significantly over a period of time, and that period of time you know very well could be enough to uh, totally kill off any crops that would be growing. So you're talking about, you know, worldwide uh, starvation level uh, scenarios where farmers just can't grow crops um, and everything that would happen there. I mean, this is like, you know, the studies that they've done recently, um, you know, I think they did, it was, they assumed 100 uh, nuclear weapons uh, in an exchange between India and Pakistan. So not even the United States and Russia, not even the United States and China, you know, India and Pakistan, uh, just 100 nuclear weapons might throw up enough soot um, that it would, you know, seriously hamper uh, uh, crops for, you know, the upcoming year. And, and you might lead to, you know, hundreds of millions uh, of deaths in places around the world, totally unconnected to the, uh, the original uh, conflict. And then, of course, you know, there's all these, um, uh, the radiation effects, the still lingering radiation effects and in the places that you know these these the nuclear powers have tested, particularly in the United States with the downwinders uh, in New Mexico and also you know across the nation where you know hundreds of thousands of people uh, died early deaths uh, due to cancer that they got from you know the radiation that was literally falling out of the sky. Um, you know, so it has serious um, environmental effects too. But I mean, I, I you know I guess the the kind of interest for me with nuclear weapons and its relation to the other problems was, you know, in a way I saw it as almost like the ultimate problem, right? Like if we don't get this one right, uh, then the other ones don't necessarily matter, right? Like you don't really need to w worry about renewable energy if, uh, if, if, you know, global thermonuclear war breaks out, right? Like it's, it's over, like the game's up, we're all gone. Um, so we really need to get this one right. Uh, and then, you know, in doing so, we'll survive long enough to figure out all these other problems. Uh, so there are there are really, you know, and there's uh, you know hundreds of other connections in between nuclear weapons and these other issues. But those are just kind of the big, the big, uh, you know, grab balls would be the kind of the money, the environment, and also just the existential uh, need to get this problem right. Yeah. So now speaking to a younger audience, how do you see nuclear war and power affecting policies and people in the future? And what should young people be concerned about? And what can they do for the future of for the future? Sorry, of nuclear disarmament. Um, get in the field, you know, come join us, uh, you know, study it, read the books, you know, know your brief, uh, become involved. Um, it's a, it's a really, like I said, it's a really, really exciting time, especially for young people. I mean, this is really, it's up to, it's up to you, you know, it's, it, it, and I say this as, you know, somebody who's only 28. So, you know, it's, uh, I would lump myself in as one of the younger people, but I, the, nothing's been set in stone yet, right? This, this, this kind of period that we're in this almost kind of period of transition, this, this pause between these two eras, you know, one that we came from the Cold War and one that will form over the next couple of decades that we're not quite sure what its characteristics are. I mean, this is our time right now to define those. Uh, 
characteristics, right? We can kind of chart the trajectory uh, of our country and of our planet over the next century. I mean, this is this is it. You know, this is the times. So it's really, really exciting. So I would I would just encourage young people. I mean, you know, take the classes. You know, get into the field. Uh, talk to people about these issues. Um, you know, don't think that it's just above you and beyond you. I mean, if you're fascinated by this, um, you know, there is a need for expertise. There are a need for passionate voices. There are a need for there is a need for uh, people to get involved, even if you're not, you know, even if you're not a policy expert, and if you're just, you know, a grassroots organizer, or if you're both. I mean, like you can. There are so many ways you can come, become involved uh, in this issue, and it just it's for me, it's just been so fulfilling, right? I mean, it's just endlessly fascinating, but also just incredibly important at the same time. You know, you can do this work and you can go to bed each night feeling that, you know, what you did, you know, really, really matters. And that's, you know, of course, that is true of many other, you know, fields that you might get into. But if there's something about you that just clicks uh, with this issue, if you just find it really fascinating, if you find it really compelling, if you find it uh, yourself really wanting to do something about this existential problem, then I would say, you know, don't shy away, you know, dive right in you know, grab it with two hands because we need people right now. Like this is, this is the time over the next decade that we're going to be setting the policies that are going to affect, you know, the next half century, you know, like to, to draw like the, you know, equivalent um, historical analogy, you know, there's in a way, you know, I almost feel like we're in the first couple of years after World War II, you know, 1946, 1947, 1948, before the Cold War really settled in. I mean, the decisions that were made in those intervening years really set the stage for the next 50 years of human history. And we're almost in a similar drawn out phase of time where the decisions that we make this year and next year over the next uh, couple of years really could um, shape uh, the next five decades in the same way that the decisions made in those years um, shaped most of the second half of the 20th century. Um, so I would just say, yeah, to, to conclude, if you're at all interested, get involved, you know, find a way to get involved, um, and, and read the books and talk to people, um, because it's a really fulfilling line of work, uh, and we need you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And before you go, where can people go to learn more about Plowshares if they're interested? Sure, absolutely. Well, they absolutely should go uh, to plowshares.org. That is www.plowshares.org. Uh, they can learn everything about what we do, about who we fund. Uh, you can learn about ways to get involved. Um, you know, it, we hold you know events. You can get the um, one of our uh, our policy director Tom Kalina just came out with a brilliant book, The Button. Um, which everybody should should buy and read to kind of get a good briefer on these these issues. Uh, but I would also encourage you to tune in every Tuesday to our podcast, Press the Button, uh, which comes out. It's a weekly show every Tuesday. Uh, we cover the nuclear news. We do in-depth interviews with people on this topic. Um, it's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just kind of the, I see Plowshares Fund as like a one-stop shop to get involved. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>